This sermon was recorded at Highway Palo Alto in Palo Alto, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. There you go. Hi, I'm David. I'm one of the pastors here at Highway. It's great to see all of you this morning. It's like uh, I can see you clearly. Like it's 2020. Buckle up, y'all. It's going to be all, it's going to be all year. I've got a question for us this morning. I've got a question for us this morning. How do you know what you're made of? How do you know what you're made of? I don't mean like carbon atoms and moxie. I mean, what are you made of? What's your essence? What's inside of you? What are you capable of? It's the new year, and questions like this are just kind of in the air at this time. We sign up for gym memberships because we want to be strong. We want to get healthy. Kale consumption goes up like 400%. Uh, We map out books we want to read, we map out places that we want to go, and it's all because there's someone that we want to become. We want to know what we're made of. January is the worst month ever to go to an open space preserve and try to find a parking spot. But what's the logic? Wait until February. Why is that? I think a lot of it is because the excitement's worn off. What was new has become routine. What was fresh starts to feel stale. Everyone remembers that they actually don't like kale. See, it's when new rhythms start to get hard, when they start to cost us something that they're easier to let go of. And I don't want to resolution shame anybody this morning, but I do want to talk about the unique way that difficulty that trial, that adversity reveals what we value. That they bring things to the surface in us that in easier moments are easier to hide. And in that way, they're really a gift. They give us a window, a view into what's really there. And sometimes we surprise ourselves in a good way. And we thank God for those moments of growth that's taken place in us for the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And sometimes we're surprised the other way. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But here's what I want us to keep in mind. What I want us to keep at the forefront, the context for this conversation, is you are deeply loved by God. That God didn't wait for us to get it together, to step into human history, to bear the consequences of our brokenness on our behalf. That this is love, not that we loved God, but God loved us first. And so we don't have to be afraid of what we find. Because moments of honest reflection are inflection points. What we do with what we discover shapes who we become the future that we step into and the future that we create for those around us. So what are you made of? As we get started this morning, would you pray with me? God, I pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love. That as we press into some moments this morning, your love for us that is unconditional and undeserved and unchanging 
would take hold of us. We thank you for the way that you love. Would you teach us how to do the same? We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. We're, we're in a series called Marks of an Authentic Christian, taking a look at the book of 1 John, which is actually a letter, and this idea of authenticity gets at our question from earlier. This idea of being congruent, what's on the inside matching, what's on the outside being real, being sincere, being genuine. And there are moments that draw it out, that give us a unique window to see what's really there on the inside and how it matches up. And difficulty, trial, adversity, challenging, hard moments have a way of bringing what's on the inside out. And in this letter, John lays out a series of markers ways to identify the work of the Spirit of God in someone's life, that there is active transformation happening as a result of an authentic encounter with Jesus that leads to a life that's markedly different than it was before. And we'll talk in the coming weeks about hope that emerges from cynicism when discernment and wisdom overtake reactiveness, when sacrifice starts to get aimed at what serves and blesses other people rather than what benefits us, what happens when confidence starts to get rooted in who God is and what God has done for us rather than in our own capacity. And John lays out these markers of authenticity to faith in a way that makes them real. And they also provide a guiding invitation. Has anyone flown a plane before? Me either. But I watched some YouTube videos about it, so I'm basically an expert now. Uh, And when you're coming in for a landing, uh, whether it's night or day, there are lights that frame the runway. They provide markers to guide you in for a landing, and that's what these markers in 1 John are like. They're not demands of perfection, but they are signs that God is active and at work in our lives, taking what was broken and making it And one of the most tangible expressions of that kind of transformation, one of the most profound markers of authentic faith that struggle can unearth is love in the midst of difficulty. To respond in love with love when you have every reason, maybe even the right not to. And John's got a thing to say about this, because this dynamic is alive in the church that he's writing to. Here's some things that we know from church history. This church was made up of primarily Jewish Christians who were living in and around the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was big. Ephesus was rich. Ephesus was a major trade and cultural hub of the Greco-Roman world. And a first century Jew would have been well acquainted with the feeling of not really fitting there. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, drove the culture through worship practices that were really rough. To be a Jew in Ephesus meant not being a part of those, not participating in these things that kind of created the cultural glue or shared identity of what it meant to be an Ephesian. And that shared experience of not really being a part of something, can connect people to each other in a powerful way. 
And then within this Jewish community, people start putting their faith in Jesus, and a church community is born. They've got John's gospel as a primary resource for them as they started to try to live lives that reflected the reality of Jesus in the world. See, in a city where they didn't fit, and through a faith in Jesus that separated them again from totally identifying, even with folks who share their same ethnic and cultural background, this church must have felt like home. And then it blows up. This false teaching about that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was, didn't really do what he said that he was going to do, comes in and it blows the whole thing up. And as we look at this letter that John wrote into that situation, I want us to keep in mind the context. That this isn't just an intellectual debate about right belief. It's also deeply personal. This community is at stake. Folks are not just buying this false teaching and leaving. They are actively recruiting. Lines are getting drawn and people are turning on each other. So how is a follower of Jesus supposed to respond in a situation like that? What's the mark of an authentic faith that's taken root and started to transform a life? Because this letter isn't just written to help remind those who read it who's for real or not. In this moment, it's also instruction, those lights on the runway for what to do when it all goes bad. Take a look with me at 1 John 2, starting in verse 9. Let's actually read this out loud together. The words are going to be on the screen. 1 John 2, starting in verse 9. Read with me. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. You know what I see when I look at these verses? There's no third option. It's either light or darkness. It's love or hate. There's no room for polite indifference. It's either or. See, here's the thing about love. It actually needs adversity to flourish. It's not a genuine value until it's tested. See, until the gloves come off and difficulty and conflict emerge, until we have to reach beyond ourselves to love someone that we don't want to. It can just be an aspiration like a well-intended New Year's resolution. See, it's when things get hard that it becomes a value, a marker of the work of God in our lives. And so this morning I want to talk about 1 John 2, 7-17, about what it says about how to love well in the midst of difficulty. And I'll say a few things uh, and then I've got a friend who's going to join me and share a bit about this from her own life. And I don't want to pressurize the situation, but you're going to want to take notes on what she has to say. So how do we love well in the midst of difficulty? Uh, let's actually start earlier. Let's take a step back and look at John's gospel. John chapter 13, starting in verse 34. This would have been a familiar text to this church, and it shades in some of what we're going to dig into in 1 John chapter 2. John 13, starting in verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. A new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So here's Jesus. He's just washed his disciples' feet, and he's rolling out for them the reality of what's about to happen, that it's about to go bad, that he's going to be betrayed and denied by them, that he's going to be crucified, so he's not going to be with them in the same way anymore. And into that pointed moment, he gives this command, love one another. And in fact, he takes it a step further, says that the defining characteristic of people who follow me, what marks a follower of Jesus, makes them visible to the world around them is the way that they love each other. That it's different, that it sets them apart, that love is a defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. Now let's bring that back with us as we look at 1 John 2, starting a few verses earlier. 1 John 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. In other words, what I'm about to say to you isn't new. You've heard this before, but I'm going to write it again because it's true. We see it in Jesus' life and we can see it in your own lives and it shines like a light that has overcome the darkness. Into verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. And anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. See, responding to difficult circumstances with love is not a new command. It is a defining characteristic of what it means to follow Jesus. And it's hard. It takes work. It costs us freedom. It puts boundaries on what we can and cannot do. Love in the midst of difficulty is hard, and so we have to reset our expectations. It's not easy, but we have calibrated in our brain that love is supposed to come naturally. It's just supposed to be this easy flow, and Brittany and I hear it a lot in a certain show that we watch from time to time where an individual is trying to find romantic love in eight weeks by dating 30 people at the same time. <laughs> and if you're thinking to yourself, gasp, isn't The Bachelor or Bachelorette some gross caricature of the Hollywood love stereotype, the very definition of insanity, as over and over again people sign up to try to find someone to marry who was a stranger eight weeks before, only to have it end badly over and over again. Well, I have two words for you. You're right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it's also revealing. It's revealing how fast relationships come to an end when things get hard. So love becomes a value when it's tested. And so we have to reset our expectations accordingly. It will ask something of us that we don't have, make us reach beyond ourselves, even in moments when we're right, to respond in love with Love. And that's the situation that John is writing to here. So the folks who were remaining faithful in the midst of this whole thing falling apart were 
right, probably felt like they had the right to respond however they wanted to. And John says, not so. If you claim to be in the light and yet hate your brother or sister, you're still in the darkness. See, love in the midst of difficulty is hard. But if Jesus said the way his followers love each other, it's going to be so unique that it stands out to everyone around them. Why on earth would we think it's going to be easy? Love in the midst of difficulty is hard, and so we need to reset our expectations. Let's take a look at verse 9 again. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. I came across a definition of hate as it's used in this verse here this week that I thought was really helpful. That hate is an attitude that has become a habit. There's a grammar linguistics thing that's happening here with the tense of the verb, which means that it's talking about not just an isolated moment in time, but something that's ongoing. See, John's not just calling out a momentary action. It's far worse than that. He's not just calling out a momentary action, but the internal attitude behind it. And you know what that means? It means on the surface we might get it right in the moment, or at least manage to come off as indifferent, all the while below the surface. There's lots of room for an attitude to start becoming a habit in the way that we think about and see other people. I think sometimes we focus too much on trying to be nice in the moment. It's a weird thing to say, but I think it's true. That we have this really sanitized view of what Christian love is, that it's just some sort of like perpetual politeness. That if we can just muster up, then we've got it. But this is, this is a conversation about authenticity, about congruence, about what's on the inside matching what's on the outside. And to love well in the midst of difficulty, we've got to reset our expectations. And we've got to push beyond trying to just be polite, to push beyond just trying to keep the peace, to actually making peace to pursue actual reconciliation, which, hear me, always comes on the other side of conflict. I can't avoid it. I think out of a desire to not have conflict, or when there is conflict, to get it over with as fast as possible, we, and by we, I mean me. This is me. Me, yes. I think out of a desire to not have conflict or to get it over with as fast as possible, we can settle for a superficial or false peace. That while it might feel better in the moment, still leaves lots of space for our attitudes about that person to become a habit. See, Christian love isn't sanitized politeness. It gets in the trenches. It can be messy. It involves conflict. Loving well in the midst of difficulty pushes to make peace instead of just trying to keep it so that there's no room for hate to linger. Loving well in the midst of difficulty is hard, and so we reset our expectations. It's about actions and attitude, and so we push to make peace instead of just trying 
to keep it, which is also hard. And so to love well in the midst of difficulty means that we need to stay connected to the right source. See, John knows something. That what we love influences how we love. And so we have to stay connected to the right source. He gives everyone a break for a few verses, encourages them in verses 12 to 14, saying, I'm writing you because you know the Father, because your sins have been forgiven, because you've overcome the evil one, because the word of God lives in you. In other words, I'm writing you because this is alive in you. You're okay, stay with me. And then we get to verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. If you're going, uh, hey David, wait a second. Didn't you just make a big fuss a few weeks ago about paying attention to the first half of John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world? Or shouldn't we do the same? What's the deal here? Well, world can refer to the created material universe like it does in John 3.16, or it can mean the world of sin that stands in direct opposition to God. The darkness that's passing away that God's light has overcome. See, John's breaking this down pretty simply. There's a way that the world loves, and it involves destructive, consuming, taking impulses, lust, and pride. And if we love the world, we love the darkness, then that's what's going to come out of us. If we love the world, then we'll love like the world. And so we've got to stay connected to the right source. Because if we love God, then we start to love like God loves. Which I think is the point Jesus is trying to make in John 13. Love each other as I have loved you. And that kind of love stands out. It's different because it's beyond what we can do on our own. It's a reflection of God's love for the world that flows through us as we connect to him. And that kind of love is a defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't become a genuine value until it's tested. It's hard, and so we need to reset our expectations. It's about actions and attitude, and so we need to push to make peace instead of just trying to keep it. And how we love is a reflection of what we love. And so we've got to stay connected to the right source. What does it look like to try to live into this? I want you to help me welcome someone who's going to share about that from her own life experience. Would you help me welcome Joyce Swift? Joy is an amazing storyteller. I'm just setting you up, aren't I, Joy? Oh, no, I'm creating some expectations for you here. I apologize for that. Yeah, sorry. I'm, uh, Joy's an amazing storyteller. Joy's also one of our junior high volunteers, uh, blesses our kids uh, to get to spend time with her. But Joy and I had a conversation a few months ago now uh, at the Jubilee celebration around the idea of forgiveness. 
Uh, and she said something I pulled out my phone and wrote down, which is that forgiveness is letting go of the past that we wanted. It's like, oh. Uh, and it comes out of a deep experience uh, of loving in the midst of difficulty within your own family. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about that with us, Joy? Thank you, Joy. We talked about resetting our expectations. We talked about pushing to make peace and not just settling for a false peace. Yeah. We talked about staying connected to the right source. I'm hearing you say gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude, gratitude, always. always. Did I leave anything else out? Oh, I don't know, but you put my talk button. I talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can we pray a blessing for you real quick? My Church. Si my sister died October 29th. Church, let's extend a hand uh, towards Joy as we pray for her. God, we thank you for Joy. We thank you for the life that she's lived. We thank you for the work of your spirit in her. Uh, we thank you for her voice in our community. We pray your blessing on her, that you'd strengthen her, and that you continue to guide her as she seeks to live faithfully with you. We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. Thank you, Joy. Can we thank Joy this morning? Uh, we wanted to close our service uh, with some time to sing and some time to take communion together, a way to remember God's unconditional love for us that we see through the cross of Jesus, the body broken uh, represented by the, blood, by the bread, uh, his blood shed for us represented by the cup. Uh, I'm going to pray before we take communion, uh, and as we do, uh, I want to just make a moment. If, there, if you're here... Uh, and you're in the midst of being asked to love in a way that pulls more from you than you have. If you're in the midst of trying to love in a difficult situation, I'd love to pray for you right now. You don't have to like raise your hand like this, but if you just go like this, uh, give me the like the, the wink or the head nod or something. Uh, I'd love I'd love to pray for you. Is there anybody is there anybody here in the midst in the midst of that? I see you. Okay. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your love is different. We thank you that it heals instead of breaks, that it mends instead of wounds. God, we confess our own shortcoming, uh, and we can do so boldly because there's no shame. because of what you've done for us. God, for my friends here in this room who are in the midst of a hard situation, I pray your presence would be with them in a profound way. That they would be able to hear your voice, that they would be able to understand and know your guidance is with them. That they would feel okay knowing that they don't have what it takes. And that in some way, you'd open us up to let your love flow through us. We thank you for your cross. We thank you for the reminder that you've come for us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's good for us to remember that together this morning.
as we come to the table, we pray these things in and for your name. Amen.